Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Now, our next bit is that we are going to a sort of best practice. We had Matt Locke from Channel 4 and Niall Murphy. Matt works for Channel 4. He's the cross-platform director. Channel 4 is doing hugely innovative things. Again, it's, it's changing its way. It's really good to see a reinvention of a station that got if I, a little sterile and a little dry. But Matt is the thinking man behind all this. So, shall we welcome Matt? Thank you. <laughs> I'd like to tell you a little story about attention. Um, I realised slightly to my shock and horror uh, halfway through this year that I'd, I'd actually worked in broadcasters for about 10 years, despite always considering myself to be a, a kind of new media geek. Um, and what's interesting reflecting on those 10 years is how the way we've talked about what people do online has shifted uh, so much over the last decade. And something's happened in particular in the last couple of years as certain types of practices have become significantly mainstream enough for us to be able to talk about them as, as new behaviours. That's really changed the way that I think about what being online and, and commissioning projects online actually means. Now, what I try to do in, in Channel 4 and what I did at the BBC is try and come up with ways of describing what people are doing without resorting to uh, kind of geeky technology terms. I, I feel that as an industry... As soon as people start to understand what people are doing, we invent new phrases like transmedia and gamification and stuff like that that just confuses everyone again. So I like to talk about people and attention and, and stories. Um, so what I'm going to talk about for the next 10 minutes or so is just how we're thinking about the way that we deliver the services that we provide at Channel 4. And it's very much based on uh, an insight that a friend of mine called Matt Webb blogged about in, in about 2008. And he wrote a short blog post in which he said that 2008 was the year that we reached peak attention. Um, and it was slightly tongue-in-cheek, and, and I don't think there's any science behind that particular suggestion. But I liked the metaphor. Uh, peak oil is, in the energy industry, the point at which the amount of extraction per year tops out, and, and tactics after that have to change to be about conservation um, and uh, uh, preservation. And what Matt was suggesting, that for, for many people living in the UK or, or, or in any developed country with a complex media landscape, we've reached peak attention. And what we're seeing people do online and what we're seeing people do around content and services is come up with new ways of curating and conserving their attention for the things that they really, really care passionately about. Now, I use attention, I have to say, as a bit of a catch-all here. What I really mean is not passive attention, as, as we tend to think about it in broadcasting, but a whole range of engagement and participation as well. So if you'll allow me that slight uh, 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 wordplay, then I'll crack on the next of the talk. Um, this is the schedule for a service that was uh, launched in uh, the first part of the 20th century in Budapest called the Telephone Hamondo. And uh, when the telephone was first developed as a, as a communication device, people didn't really know or understand what it would do. And many people thought it would become a broadcast device as much as it would a person-to-person -person device. So the Telephone Hamondo was a one-way telephone that you could subscribe to, and you would have 
a phone installed in your kitchen or living room. And at certain times during the day, you could pick up the phone and listen to content. You couldn't talk back at all. And in actual fact, the telephone perhaps is one of the few uh, media technologies of the 20th century other than the Internet that you know, actually became a, primarily a P2P device rather than a broadcast one. But for me, this is the first attempt to organise attention um, on behalf of a proposed audience. And, what, and what's interesting looking at it is how familiar it looks now, 100 or so years later. We still tend to organise audiences' attention according to these half-hour or hour-long chunks. And most of the 20th century was essentially about the organising of attention on behalf of the audience, whether it's in uh, TV schedules, radio schedules, uh, boxed media like records, etc., and even up to DVD box sets. But what's changed in the last couple of years... Uh, quite significantly, is we're seeing people manage their own attention in ways which are surprising and, and, and sometimes quite enlightening and very hard for mainstream organisations to understand. In a way, uh, most of the large media organisations around the world have, have kind of grown used to the fact that people will watch things in the order and in the uh, arrangement that you uh, supply them, and that really isn't the case anymore. So what I think we're seeing at the moment is three or four new attention shapes, and in designing the services and content that we, we make at Channel 4, I try and get commissioners to think about the shape of attention. You know, what kinds of patterns of engagement are you getting? So the first one I'll talk about is, is the one that most resembles TV at the moment, and it's about live, synchronous attention with millions of people watching, commenting, engaging in the same thing at the same time. And in a way, I think TV is moving towards an increased event uh, a kind of eventing of certain genres. So you're getting, obviously, big live entertainment shows like X Factor, etc. Uh, you're getting live factual entertainment uh, formats. Uh, us at Channel 4 did a live game show called Million Pound Drop. And in a way, TV, having had a monopoly on attention in the living room for about 50 years, is now having to find out what it does better than all of these other new devices. And just as radio, when it was kicked out of the living room by TV in the 50s, had to discover what its unique selling point was, which was kind of an ambience, which meant that you could do other things while you're listening to it. And therefore, radio shifted into new contexts like the car, which led to drive time programming and the workplace, which led to phone-ins and things like that. So TV is having to kind of understand what its USP is. And I think increasingly it's this ability to deliver the same piece of content to millions of people synchronously all at once. And so what we're seeing at Channel 4 with projects like Seven Days, which was uh, produced by Stephen Lambert, um, as a kind of open-ended reality documentary where the show was filmed in Notting Hill over seven days and you could go online and engage with the contributors to the show. It was tr to try and get a sense of this feeling of a live community going on. And Seven Days was really interesting to me because it was one of the first projects I've done in a broadcaster where I massively underestimated the amount of engagement we would get from the audience. Uh, this is actually the chart of, of traffic to the server in the first ten minutes of the first show. Um, and that was pretty much driven by a couple of very strong calls to action on screen before the show had even started, saying go online and, and, and talk to the people involved in this project. And it, it knocked the site over. The site went down on the first night. It was hugely embarrassing. I had to go into a meeting with Stephen Lampert, which is you know, not an experience I'd recommend, um, and explain what had happened. But basically, we'd completely underestimated the, the rush of attention that uh, we would get for this project. And in actual fact, that peak was higher than any synchronous peaks that we'd seen around Big Brother that year. Um, in actual fact, the biggest peak was the following week. After we'd re-architected the servers and, and made it a lot more resilient, we saw a peak of one and a half times that. And that was driven by something very interesting. Um, in the second show, the show didn't really do very well. 
Um, but in the second show, you started to see uh, the contributors being filmed talking about what people have been saying with them online. And about 33 minutes into the second episode, uh, Cassie, one of, the, uh, uh, one of the people we were following in the show, gets her laptop out and is filmed talking to her family and friends about what people have been saying to her online. And we saw this gigantic spike. So what we saw there was somebody online pulling out a laptop and talking about what people at home the following week have been saying about her on their laptops while they're watching on the previous programme. And that drove loads of people at home watching TV with their laptops to go online and talk about her again. We've got this kind of weird mirroring of people kind of sitting at home with laptops talking to people on screen with laptops. And it just felt like a really interesting moment. So one of the things that broadcasters will continue to do increasingly well is these big events that really are about building audiences around a time and a place. Another interesting thing for me is about how this changes what we think a website is. This is the traffic for Million Pound Drop, a very successful game show that has a play-along website. Um, and it occurred to me after the second series that we only make the program, the, the, the application, live online during the broadcast. So in actual fact, we've, only, we've built a website that hasn't even been live for, for a day so far. Um, and normally at broadcasters, normally when you build for the web, you think about the web as this permanent asynchronous presence. And we're starting to produce pop-up sites and services, things that only exist to capture attention at a certain period of time and then switch themselves off again. And I'm not entirely sure, I, I don't know whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, but it just struck me as really interesting. It also looks, it's a big technical challenge, because if you show these kinds of charts to sysadmins, it looks like a, a DDoS, a distributed denial of service attack. And, and at the moment, it looks like we're deliberately trying to take our site down by building these kind of services. So one of the things we're really dealing with is this, <coughs> this pattern of live synchronous attention. Lots of people sitting at home with two screens, either uh, the laptop or the mobile phone, engaging with content that they know other people are watching at the same time. So that feels comfortable to TV, and we're, we're getting more and more sophisticated at doing it. The second pattern of attention is around cult shapes, and this is really about big story worlds that people become incredibly invested in um, and have a huge relationship with. So we started seeing this uh, a few years ago around big high-concept shows like Lost, and this is, this is an image from a blog post from a, a colleague of mine at the BBC at the time called Dan Hill, where he tried to map all of the content being produced online um, around Lost. And what's interesting about people's pattern of attention with big, rich story worlds like drama, etc., is that they really, really save up their attention. Um, people really, really conserve their attention and, and, and keep the shows until they can relax. I mean, I'm a huge <coughs> fan of Mad Men, and I'm still only about four episodes into the last series because me and my wife really wait for that moment where we can sit down and immerse ourselves in that story world. And what we see online is communities engaging across very, very different asynchronous experiences. The extreme of this, this is a blog by uh, Anna Picard, who writes for The Guardian, and she had never seen Lost before the last uh, series was uh, uh, broadcast earlier on this year. And so she decided to binge watch the entire previous series six seasons over a period of a week, and she kept this blog. But we're seeing this kind of binge consumption of really, really rich, immersive storylines, and people saving up their attention and spending it in a very, very considered and curated way on something that they love. And we're seeing that in gaming as well. We see people do kind of like binge uh, consumption of games, um, but particularly seeing it around anything that, in, that is about a very rich story world, something that you can get lost in, something you can really kind of get immersed in the minutiae of, that you can go online and talk to people about. We, what we do to support these kinds of shows at Channel 4 is, you know, we create extra content for the web, we work with the writing teams to create Facebook and, and other kind of profiles for the characters, and superfans really enjoy playing with the kind of boundaries of this world and engaging with it. But the pattern of attention is very different. Um, we don't, we still get a lot of peaks around the first broadcast episode of a new series, but the viewing is spread over a much wider period of time, months, sometimes even years. 
Uh, David Hepworth, the uh, journalist and, and founder of Wired magazine, I was chatting to him once about this, and he said that he thought The Wire was the first TV show that people passed around in the same way that you would pass a rock album around in the 70s. People would kind of put it in your hands and say, oh, you must watch this, and it was this kind of treasured object. And so we're seeing this distributed uh, a pattern of attention around cult content. The third shape is, is, is slightly more diffuse at the moment, and it's partly around factual content. So in this, I'm really talking about campaigns and missions. And missions have kind of, uh, campaigns and missions have been kind of overused slightly by factual entertainment as ways of telling a story. We're all familiar with uh, shows on TV where a and other celebrity stands up at the beginning and says, so what about this then? I've got three weeks to find out as much as I can about why, and it just doesn't really hang together as a mission. But what we can do online is we can take uh, people who genuinely have a passion about something and follow that campaign, follow that mission through, with TV as, as, as a kind of peak moment during it, but not necessarily where the real thing happens. So an example of this, in Channel for Education, we commissioned a show called Battlefront, which follows 12 uh, teen campaigners as they try to make a huge difference. It, it brain ranges over the two seasons. The issues have ranged from gun and knife crime and gangs to um, a woman called uh, uh, Zuhal Sultan in Baghdad who was trying to start the first National Youth Orchestra of Iraq. Um, so a very, very broad range of efforts. And what was interesting for me is the pattern of attention we see around this. These are very diverse projects that live in many different places online. But they have a familiar kind of gradually growing curve to a, to a, a kind of real moment of achievement and uh, crescendo of, of, of activity at the end. So Battlefront runs for about a year. The TV only really kicks in about 10 months into the project. And what we ask a lot of people to do online is to follow them, to follow them on Twitter, Facebook, get involved with their campaigns. What interests me about these structures is that the key moment, the, the, the moment that really feels like um, the most valued part of the experience for people taking part of this, happens in the real world. It doesn't happen, uh, take place online isn't really about the TV. It's often about an event that they organize in real space. It might be a march. It might be a fundraising event. It might be something that actually uh, um, is a bit more uh, uh, kind of out there. Um, but the point is, is that the media landscape, particularly for these teens, they don't really seem any... I'm, I'm very wary of using the word digital native because I think it's, it's pointlessly reductive. But what's clear to me is, is that teens involved in this project don't really see a difference between the communities they're building online and the communities they're building offline. Um, they're genuinely uh, seeing the web as a place that helps them uh, build a, a groundswell of attention to the point where they can actually make something happen in the real world. So the pattern of attention for these projects builds slowly and then gathers pace towards a key moment. And one of the challenges we have is what happens afterwards. What happens after the uh, uh, campaign has, has, has had its kind of key moment? How do people carry on? How do you get people uh, continuing to uh, be engaged in this? And we do this in a number of ways. We obviously do campaigns with talent like Jamie Oliver and We've got a big fish season coming up next year in Channel 4 uh, where we try and do this. And so I'm thinking a lot more about how the web and social media support the moments that TV can do to get real attention. But the lesson for me here is about the real world, is about the fact that whatever we do and however we support these projects, they drive people towards a real experience. And uh, being based no more than about uh, 500 metres away from the uh, riots in Parliament Square last week, it's, I think we're entering a kind of really interesting period of time where young people who are going to feel very excluded and, and, and poorly delivered in terms of support for their ambitions are going to, you know, who have access to very powerful social media tools, they're going to create some really interesting ways of using the media landscape to, to, to make change and to get the attention that they want. And I think one of Channel 4's job is to look at how we can support them in doing that. Uh, the last shape I'll talk about is one that um, I really think we struggle to understand in broadcasters. And I used to think it was about um, uh, the, the content itself. Uh, it's really essentially about games and about how playing 
social playing has become a very, very you know, popular form of, of, of activity and attention online. And I spent about five or six years at the BBC working with colleagues like Alice Taylor and others, trying to get the BBC to understand that games were about to become very social and very mainstream. And people would kind of smile and say, yeah, really, really great research, and then nothing would happen. And what me and Alice had done, particularly at Channel 4, is, is experiment with commissioning games. And I think that the challenge now is, you know, most broadcasters kind of understand that games are big. They see that, you know, Call of Duty gets bigger box office than most Hollywood movies. They see, you know, a very different demographic playing games like Farmville. But I just think we don't understand the attention. Um, and there's a very good reason for that. Um, when you play a game, you're often experiencing uh, a storyline in a very asynchronous way over a very long period of time. This is a, uh, a game we commissioned online called 1066 in Channel for Education to support... Um, a, to run in parallel with a dock that went out in the evening at, at 8 o'clock. And it launched in May 2009, and by the end of the year it had about 20 million plays. Now, a lot of these were global. We were distributing it on global sites like Miniclip and Mousebreaker and Congregate. But about you know, 8 to 10% of them, so a good 1 to 2 million uh, of those plays were from the UK. But we also became the number one result on Google for 1066, beating uh, um, the BBC and uh, Wikipedia's uh, pages around the same issue. And so I started going into Google Insight to try and find out you know, what people were looking for. And in Google Insight, you can go and look over a period of time and see the frequency of searches for certain related terms. So of all the searches relating to 1066 in Google in 2009, there was about 10 trending-related terms. So in other words, terms that people generally hadn't connected to 1066 before 2009 but did um, in great numbers in that year. And some of them are related to the TV program. So this is people searching for 1066 Channel 4, which I assume is people looking for the TV show. And so the pattern for attention... Um, that a TV show gets, a single doc going out in the evening in May, is something like this. You get a bit of interest before when people start to search for it a month or so before when schedules are announced. It peaks around the TX in May, and then it drops pretty quickly afterwards. So the attention that people give to a show like that looks a bit like that kind of up-and-down curve. This was the uh, pattern of searches for 1066 game, which clearly referred to the game that we'd produced. Um, it started in April when we released the game. It got some great reviews on game blogs in June and July. It was very hot in August, so it dropped down. And then it picked up again. And that chart now kind of carries on. And we still get around 150,000, 200,000 plays a week of that game. Um, now, for broadcasters, this is really strange. People are playing this game at all times of day or around the world. The average play time is around 20 minutes. Um, so it feels like a, a decent amount of time that people are playing the game. But the longevity of it and the kind of open access of it is something quite surprising. And so basically, I think what we're seeing with games is, is a, a, a playful attention. It's lots and lots and lots of small bits of attention accumulating. This is a, uh, an image from a game called Katamari Damacy, which I use as a metaphor for this attention. It's not a chunk of attention like a TV program um, or a live event. This, in this game, you play this small colored ball, and you roll around the landscape, first of all picking up small objects and gradually getting bigger, and your aim is to get to be 300 meters big. So you start picking up cows, and then you pick up street furniture and then buildings and subs and you get bigger and bigger and bigger and in a way this is how the attention patterns of games work lots and lots of small bits of attention that pick up over time so Farmville is a really good example of this many of you will know what Farmville is it has an average playtime of 70 minutes 
Um, it's played by 1%. Active users is 1% of the, of the world population, um, so around 600 million people. Um, and also, the average player is a 40-year-old woman on more than 50K a year. So it's a very, very different demographic. And Farmer was designed that you can only play it for about 10 minutes, and unless you pay them, your session ends, and you have to wait and come back the next day. So it's specifically designed for lots of small bits of attention. And in broadcasters, we just don't understand that. We're used to these big half-hour, hour-long, two-hour-long chunks, and we don't know how to create content that you can play at any time of the day in five- or ten-minute chunks. So this is new, and the people at companies like Zynga that make Farmville. Their biggest skill base at the moment is in analyzing attention. They spend all their time hiring people who can really look at attention and when they launch a new feature, iterate a new feature and kind of understand it. So this is really about tiny asynchronous and, and often very, very social actions. This is a, a, a game that I love called Words with Friends, which is basically Scrabble on the iPhone. I play it in tiny little chunks throughout the day. I actually rather cheekily was uh, finishing a couple of moves uh, during the last talk. But it's... Um, <laughs> but I managed, I managed to get a triple word score, so that's all right. Um, but the point is, it's there for those kind of tiny moments of the day when you want to just engage in a, in, in a, a kind of ambient social behaviour with friends. So... What's interesting for me, and what's interesting if you're thinking of designing services, is about thinking about these new attention shapes, thinking about pop-up shapes, building crowds around big live events, and then expecting that service to disappear again afterwards. Thinking about cult shapes, build, building huge spaces where people who love a certain property or story can really immerse themselves in that world and, and share it, and having peaks around new content being released for that audience. Thinking about campaign shapes, slowly building communities towards real-world change, and thinking about playful experiences, tiny fragments of asynchronous social action held together by a story. And so this, for me, feels like we're shifting our understanding of what the web is for audiences. You know, before we, in the, in the 90s, it was about publishing, about getting stuff up there and, and not really thinking about what people were doing with it. Then we started thinking about communities in the early Web 2.0 era and increasingly about services, you know, thinking of the web as a service that you're providing to users. I think now we need to think about the web as an experience. When we talk to teens using Battlefront, the website and their social media sites are part of their experience of the world. It's not a separate, uh, um, it's, it's not a separate uh, kind of thing that they do. And of course it's fragmented across lots of different devices. So the one constant, if you're designing services, whether they're government services, whether they're online supermarkets, whether they're you know, websites for, for fantastic karaoke bars, you've got to think how much attention are people really going to give this and what pattern of attention uh, do we expect? Most of the pictures I get about cross-platform projects that don't work for me don't work because people make huge assumptions about the amount of attention that people are going to give and they, create, they presume patterns of attention which are just unsustainable, that people will go to a site and spend an hour kind of looking for a hidden door to try and find a secret and stuff. We're all too busy for that. You know, we're at peak attention and if you're designing services, if you're designing ways to genuinely get people to take advantage of the web, you have to think about experience and you have to think about attention. The people doing that best at the moment are people like Zynga. Um, I actually think Tesco are very good at it because they understand attention in terms of shops and they know what happens if you move the beans from aisle Z to aisle Q very, very well. And I think we have to be working and thinking about attention in how we design all of our services. So that's really what we're doing at Channel 4. And thank you very much. That's me on Twitter.